I'd like to open up with a word of prayer, if you don't mind. Your gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you have provided for us. Thank you for the weather. And Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come uh, gather as your, your children, uh, Christians, Father, and look into your word and understand what it has, what, what you would have us learn from it. Father, let us listen carefully to the words that you have prepared for us. And Father, let us all uh, just offer our own wisdom, our own uh, perspective on how your words have touched our lives. And Father, allow us to uh, take all of this knowledge that you're going to provide for us, Father, and let us uh, apply it in our lives in a way that you would have us. Let us always be uh, joyful ambassadors for you. Let us reach out and bring others to you. And Father, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the class is titled Security, and we had been talking about leadership and some other things. Um, but this class is about um, knowing that you don't have anything to lose. And, and when you're playing a game, um, you know, chess or backgammon or, or, you know, or even football or something like that, the object of the game is to win. And that's what most people focus on and that's the attention. But, but it's interesting when you take that dynamic away and you eliminate the possibility of losing, the game's a lot more fun, right? I mean, think about it when you were a kid. If, if you were playing a game and you knew you couldn't lose the game, you were able to relax and focus on just how is the game going? And so the objective that's presented in joint doctrine in uh, the joint military parlance and making sure that the, the Air Force and the Army and the Navy and Marines all play together well and they can win, one of the, uh, one of the objectives or one of the uh, aspects is never permit the adversary to acquire an advantage or an unexpected advantage on you. Basically, this means cover your flanks. Make sure that nobody can ambush you. Make sure that nobody can, can get around you to a side that you're unprotected. And as long as you do that, then you can focus on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, my dad used to say that it's hard to remember you were there to drain the swamp when you're up to your ankles and alligators. So this is the prospect, this is the, the objective. Um, the show and tell piece is, uh, let me read this carefully because there's, there's a lot of facts in here that I have to get right. So 9th Marine Corps, 3rd Marine Division, um, there was a platoon leader who was out and the platoon was ambushed. And this is March 30th, 1967 in Vietnam. Uh, so the young lieutenant had been, second lieutenant had been in the Corps less than a year, literally graduated uh, and had been in theater about 90, 90 days. Uh, most of his time was spent in training. Uh, the lieutenant quickly organized a defensive position and personally gave orders and provided supplies to his men. A mortar severed his right leg below the knee while he was coordinating withdrawal from the, from the, uh, the ambush. Realizing his men were about to be surrounded and killed, the lieutenant wrapped a tourniquet around the remains of his leg and began a heavy barrage of suppressive fire into the main assault of the adversary. His men were able to move to a more secure location and rallied back to defeat the ambush, but not before the lieutenant died from his wounds. For his fearless commitment to safety and security, Second Lieutenant John P. Bobo was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. <clears throat> now here's a hat from the boat that's, that bears his name, the John P. Bobo. And I was able to get this from a friend of mine who was the commander of the ship that I was able to, to chat with for a bit. Now I knew the story of John P. Um, because as I was growing up, my father uh, was a cousin to John P. and he had met him at a, at a uh, big family reunion, that kind of thing. So my dad was kind of aware of who John P. was, and when he won the Congressional Medal of Honor, it became a pretty big thing because 
Uh, spoiler alert, if your last name is Bobo, you're related to everybody else who wears the name Bobo. Good, bad, or indifferent, we can't live down anything that a Bobo does. There's a guy named Gabriel who came over in 1640-ish. Um, his name was B-A-U-B-A-U-X. The guy at the border said, yeah, your name is B-O-B-O -B -O from now on. Nobody had that name until he did, and thus began the name Bobo. So it's, it's kind of interesting in the fact that uh, this kind of history, we can all kind of figure out how we're related. Then you go back a couple of grandfathers, and he and I are related as well. So what does that mean? How do we, how do we take this idea of protection and knowing that somebody has your back and apply it to our lives as a, as a Christian. So the slogan, no one left behind, is a military doctrine and uh, the Marines carry it around. Um, and it means that you, you're not gonna be forgotten. We're not going to let you get in a position where we have to withdraw and, and we will let you just kind of wing it out by yourself. Um, as Christians, we can kind of take this and look at it from this way. As Christians, no one has to be left behind. In fact, we should live our lives so that no one is left behind. On the battlefield, that inspires confidence. It lets us take things on and, and, and it lets us do things that we normally might not do if we were all out there by ourselves. As Christians, what are things that come to mind when you think no one left behind? And I've got a microphone, so if, you, if you've got a thought, here in the back. We should bear each other's burdens, okay? Any other thoughts? No one left behind. Someone always has your back. Okay, there you go. We bear each other's burdens, and someone always has your back. You, you can... You can feel comfortable, you can feel safe, you can feel confident in moving forward and doing the things that you need to do. What does confidence overcome? Fear, there we go. Fear is the number one adversary, if you will, or the number one tool that our adversary likes to use. What are some of the things that fear can cause us to do? Cause us to hesitate. Hang on to the back. I got doubt. There we go. I can hesitate. I can doubt. I can start becoming uh, a little more concerned about how things are going. Alan, you got something more? Yeah, I just want to add fear stands for false evidence appearing real. There we go. I like that. I like that breakdown. False evidence appearing real. Winston Churchill has the famous saying, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And, and that's how we should operate as Christians. Fear is nothing but this imaginary thing out there that is a boogeyman in close quarters. So fear can prevent us from doing the things that we ought to do. Confidence emboldens us to do the things that we ought to do. And so there's this kind of combination of things going on. And as long as we are confident that we aren't gonna get left behind, confident that somebody has our back, confident that somebody is gonna help us with the burdens that we have, we feel like we can go do things. Think about, think about people who are interested in becoming a Christian. What are some of the fears there? What, what, what do, how does fear affect somebody who isn't yet a Christian, but they're thinking about it? 
Alan in the back. Hey. Many I've talked to have said they're concerned about what their family or friends are going to think about them. Exactly. What are people going to think? I, I want to be a Christian, but, but how are people going to treat me different? How are people going to think about me? I'm going to get laughed at. I'm going to get ridiculed. And so fear is a wet blanket for both Christians and people who are interested in becoming Christians. And Satan knows this, and Satan has this insight on humanity, and he's constantly working against us. Listen to this, John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30. This is how we know Christ will always protect us. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father am one. Okay, there's a lot packed in that verse. Some people have gone a little bit to the extreme and said that by that verse we know once we're saved, we're always saved, and there's nothing that can take it away from us. Eh, okay, that, that's a little more reading into what Christ's words are, because there's a lot of testimony in the Scripture that says, we ourselves, if we fail to live as Christ wants us to live, we in fact have turned our back on the salvation that Christ has presented to us, and that is falling away. So he's right. No one, and you have to take the metaphor, no one other than ourselves, can take us out of Christ's hand. No one can, no one, no issue, Satan himself, despite all the, all the fire arrows he throws at us, Satan cannot separate us from God's love and Christ's salvation. Amen? Done deal. Okay, so remember when I said when you were a kid, it was great when you could play a game and you didn't have to worry about who was winning? That's the game. This is the game, life. You don't have to worry about winning because someone's already won the game for you. Amen? So play the game like we're not winning or losing. Well, but there is a winning. Is there a winning side to Christ? What's the winning side of Christ? Salvation, heaven. Any other thoughts? What's the winning side to Christ? Forgiveness of sins, eternal life. How do we redeem that reward? How do I cut, how do I, how do I make that ticket real? Okay, let me get a mic for you. Baptism, through baptism. Through baptism, yes. And we live the life, and then when we die, it's all over, right? Game over, we're done. No, when we die, that's when we become eternal. That's, that's when we win. That's when this life that we're walking through is over. But the beauty and the joy and our salvation, our redemptive spirit, that's when, we begin, that's when life begins, really. I mean, we're here on earth to live the life of a mortal. And we have that, and we're going to walk through it. A lot of people fear death. A lot of people fear it like there's no other. It's, it's just this huge thing that's challenging us. Christ has overcome that. I'm sorry, go on in the back, Steve. Once we have, you know, we believe and are baptized, then that our eternal life begins then. So we shouldn't think that it, begins at the moment of death that you know that we are in that and so that we are we are living 
eternally now. So, you know, we shouldn't think that, you know, that we have to wait for that. You know, we have those blessings as a, you know, as Paul says, a down payment, you know, for all the, you know, things that we will be experiencing, uh, you know, the love and joy and peace, you know, those things are, are there for us now so that we can enjoy that aspect of eternal life, you know, right as we're still alive on this realm here. It's very insightful, Steve. How do you know eternal life starts itself at, at, at baptism? How do we know that? How do we have confidence that once we're baptized into Christ, we've it's, won? Well, the promises that are, you know, they're in Scripture. The promises in the Scripture, exactly. First John chapter 2, verse 28. You read my mind. And now, little children, abiding in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. When we abide in him, when we become Christians through baptism, we are abiding in him. Amen? And as we abide in him, we can be confident that nothing is going to shake us. And we don't have to worry about this thing called death, because death is just a step. It's, it's that thing that allows us to go from this life to the next, and the next is infinitely better than what we've got. So that's how we work together as individuals, and we understand Christ is is our back, basically. Now I want to shift gears just a little bit and say, how do, we, how do we do that as a church? How does the church operate in this secure environment, knowing that the church can rely on Christ? Because now we're talking about a group of people who think and work together independently, but yet together. So how do we work, how do we do that as a church? As you read through those, Paul kind of touches on both the individual and the church. Because if we individually are timid and weak, we individually will not be able to be effective for Christ. The reason I brought John Bobo into the picture is John knew that his team was a team of individuals. Collectively, they had the ability to fear. Collectively, they had the individual ability to panic and run. And they'd probably be wiped out. But collectively, if they had someone watching their back, they could rally as a unit and they could overcome the obstacle. And so John became that rallying point. John knew that as long as his men had confidence that someone had their back, they could work together effectively. They could pull together as a team. As a church, we know Christ has our back, both individually and collectively. Christ is going to watch over this church. Christ has provided for this church. This church has nothing to fear. But the church has to understand that, and the church has to realize that collectively, we can all work without this thing called fear. So, how do we, how do we make sure that we can work through this? How do we know that individually, we all have each other's back. Because John was just a guy. I mean, John was, the, was the, the commanding officer, but it could have been anyone in his platoon that could have stepped up and said, hey, I've got this. Everybody else rally back and let's, let's make this work. Was it something special about John? Eh, I mean, my dad met him. He talked to him. <laughs> he honestly thought John was just a little half-baked. But, but, you know, that was my dad. Knowing the, knowing the man before he won the Congressional Medal of Honor. 
and, and I've known heroes as well. And, and when you talk to them, they're, they're normal people. They're just average people. They just put in rather odd circumstances, odd situations. I get a microphone for you. Hold on just a second. Okay. I get a microphone because I, I know you have an epiphanal thought. Thanks. Um, sometimes I think uh, people have a special insight um, that will come out in a situation sometimes. You know, it's a, if you want to call it a, a, a blessing. Okay. You know, that God, you know, says, hey, these guys are coming, do something. And okay. you happen to have a really big gun, you know, and um, you know how to load it and shoot it. You know, you can help in this situation, you know. So being prepared. Being prepared, yeah. Having an insight as to what's coming, being prepared. Are we prepared as Christians for everything that's going to hit us? We hope so, but there's probably going to be some things out there that we're not we weren't thinking of ahead of time. But there's an opportunity that we have to sit down and talk to one another, to share the gospel, to think about things, to reflect on things that have happened to us individually, and to share our various perspectives. Because I may not understand how things work in a particular perspective, but Diane probably does have that insight. She's got a lot more wisdom than I do. Because of that, Diane can help me see things through her perspective. So I may not be prepared for what's about to hit me, but I know Diane is. Or if not Diane, maybe Alan or Steve. What I'm saying is we have each other. And the uniqueness and the beauty is we each have lived different lives. And if we allow those differences to create friction, Satan can cause that to create fear, and Satan can tear the church apart. But it's the exact differences that Christ is bringing together to allow us to work together in a way that individually we could never accomplish. Satan wants to create diversity. Satan wants to create division because of the uniquenesses that we are. Christ is saying that uniqueness is what I instilled in you. Those are the talents and the personalities and the beauty that makes us unique. And that's what makes the church collectively strong enough to deal with anything Satan's going to throw at us. As long as we trust each other. That's a strong word. So individually, we have to trust that somebody has our back. Is that easy or is it hard? Is it easy to trust somebody? If you know them, okay, there we go. So I need to have a feel. I need to, I need to, to, to know there's something about you that's trustworthy. How do I make you confident that you can trust me? What are things that I can do or say that instill confidence in you that I am a trustworthy individual? Hold on, thought here. Uh, one of the things that I was, um, that I was thinking is we need to um, establish uh, relationships. I mean, it's nothing that you're, you're gonna be able to say you know, to me per se, you know, but once, once we establish that relationship and it's like, you know, oh, I, I think I could, I believe I could trust him and I'll continue to believe that until you <laughs> prove yourself untrustworthy 
Okay, trust requires a relationship. I love that. And trust requires something else that you said, and that's belief. I believe that you are trustworthy. I can't put my finger on it, but I just, you're doing things and you're acting, you're behaving in a way that to me, impress upon me that you are trustworthy. And I will trust you until you do something that proves to me you're no longer trustworthy. So that's how we work individually. We work together individually. Now, unfortunately, trust is one of those things that once you break it, it is like glass. It shatters and it takes a long time to rebuild that trust. Collectively, as a church, how can the church inspire confidence and trust in each other? Same thing. We're a bunch of individuals. We're a bunch of folks who all think about and watch things that are happening. The congregation needs to work together collectively to ensure that the trust of the individuals is that cementing block. It's that glue that holds the church together. Now, I, made, I took some statistics and I looked around. There's about 2.1 billion people in the world who claim some relationship with Christ. 2.1 billion people. That's a lot of people. I got a feeling those 2.1 billion people, if you were to take two random people and put them together, they probably wouldn't know enough about each other. They wouldn't have that relationship to trust each other. But could you imagine the power of 2.1 billion people in a single cohesive unit trusting and working together? I mean, it's, it's crazy, but I mean, things like the, the, the Russia-Ukraine, that would not happen. Simply wouldn't happen if we had 2.1 billion people as Christians united across this globe to do his will. Satan wouldn't have a chance. Honestly, I believe that Satan just absolutely would have to give up and go home. There are 450,000 churches in America, the United States. Imagine 450,000, the voice that that could have if all of them worked together, if all these various churches read and, and looked at the scripture and worked it out together and collectively and trusted and love and came to the right conclusion. Wow. I mean, this is power, but unfortunately, Satan has created the divisions among the churches such that we, we, we simply can't get to that trust factor where the churches trust each other enough to believe that the gospel really is what it is. And there is a way to read it and a way to understand it. Okay. The church, this is getting back a little bit in my personal experience. Churches, um, especially the churches that have had that trust issue messed with, churches develop and can develop a foxhole mentality. What I call foxhole mentality is they're going to hunker down, they're going to hold on, they're going to preserve, they're going to try to keep the people that are in the church together, and they're going to try to keep them safe, and, and they're going to be careful about who gets in, and, and they're going to be really, really strict on all of those kinds of things. What happens when a church focuses inward? You die. every time yes and we're growing old and we don't want anybody in because we don't want anybody to mess up our little happy camp but it's not your camp it does not belong to you this is god's word amen and it's supposed to go out to all the world and if you're so conceited that you think 
that this is for you to hold on to and you to massage it and you to be in control. It's a power thing. It is not about you. It has never been and it never will be about you. That's exactly it. It is not about us individually. It isn't even about us as the church. It is about how this church behaves in the world and how we reach out and how we step forth boldly. Again, if you think about it, the church can't accept, the church can never be willing to accept losses, as it's put. Okay? And what I mean by that is the church can't sit back and go, well, you know, I wish we could do something about that, but, you know, it's just the risks are just too great. No, that, that is the death. The church has to be this bold, flavorful spice that reaches into the chili of life and just permeates it and lets everybody understand who we are and what Christ stands for. Yes. You know, uh, I was reading an article in the Christian Chronicle, mm -hmm. and it was talking about the death of a lot of churches of crisis throughout the country how that type of mentality has been so pervasive that the church is starting to die and grow, grow out. Right. And it's, 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 it was sad to me, but then it also made me think, that's all the more reason we really should be about being out there trying to touch more people because we are getting older and we need to impress upon our young people how important God is and how we need to share him throughout. We cannot stop fighting a fight. And sometimes when you read something, it'll get in your mind it'll make you get discouraged but God said that's the devil too trying to show you that you can't do something that I've already prepared you to do exactly here is revelations because this is exactly what you're talking about revelations chapter 2 uh, 8 through 11 and to the angel of the church in Smyrna right and remember Smyrna is the good guys but you'll understand that this is a challenging right this is a challenging situation for the church these things says the first and last who is dead and came to life I know your works tribulation and poverty but you are rich and i know the blasphemy of those who say they are jews and are not but they are a synagogue of satan do not fear any of those things which are which you are about to suffer indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and that you will have tribulation 10 days be faithful unto death and i will give you the crown of life he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit of the church says to the churches he who has overcome he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Christ is saying, look, Smyrna, you may be impoverished. You may be poor in wealth, but you are rich in spirit. You may be going through the biggest tribulations of your life, but right now you as a church are having a profound impact on everybody around you. You are doing exactly what I want you as a church to do. Christ is warning the churches through this letter, hey, guess what? You're not going to have a rose garden. It's not going to be a bed of roses where you get to just kind of lollygag through. The church is going to be challenged by Satan. The church will be persecuted. But just like stirring that pot of chili, you can't let the spice sit in one spot. It has to permeate through. It has to be absorbed through the rest of the meal. And the churches cannot hunker down and just simply weather what Satan is throwing at us. We can't simply try to survive it. Make sense? As we survive, as we move forward, we are doing something incredible. We are building the relationships that we talked about. Because when I see you suffering, I am able to step up and help you. 
Satan can get one of us or two of us. He can't get all of us. And as long as we are collectively willing to help the one or two that are struggling, we are building that trust. We are creating that cement that ties this congregation to a point that Satan just can't work against. Satan looks for the soft sandstone churches that, that he can just reach in and touch and crumble. And you get that way over time if you're complacent and you let yourself sit in that one spot and you just let age just sort of work against the materials and you let those relationships die and you, you, you become more focused about what you're doing than you are focused about what the church could be doing. Plot here. Get a microphone for you. And listening to what you just said, um, I, I was just reminded of the early churches, you know, the early church, when they were persecuted, they scattered about and they went about spreading, you know, um, God's word everywhere that they went and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to even suffer the, um, for the gospel. They counted it worthy to suffer because they were suffering on Christ's behalf. I can express my trustworthiness by the things that I do. And I can build that trust with you because when I see you hurting, I step forward and I try to help you. I do what I can. You see me respond because I see that challenge and I rise to the challenge time and time again. That relationship is how the church responds to suffering around us. Is the world, is the world in chaos? Is the world in crisis? Can we do something about it? Can we help? Yes. And that's what God wants us to be doing. Because as his people who are lost sheep are out there looking for the way, they will gravitate to whoever is leading them along until they hear his voice. And they hear his voice through the church. Can people hear about Christ if they're not looking? Can people hear about Christ if they're not looking? Yes. Will people pay attention to that message all the time? Probably not. I mean, we've got billboards, we've got videos, we've got all this stuff on YouTube. We've got a ton of information out there telling people, hey, here's who Christ is. Why don't we have everybody in the world flocking to Christ right now? They're lost in darkness, and they love it. They're lost in darkness, and they love it. Hang on, I've got another comment here. Thank you, Mike. So I've had the privilege to work a couple of times with the food pantry here, and interesting to see how they do things, you know, because they take these little labels, and they print out Laurel Church of Christ and where we are, and they stick it on every juice box, every, everything. And I just looked at it like, really guys? I think it could be a little bit more efficient. And I think it was Steve that told me, well, we do this because when you're drinking that little juice box, you might see that label and say, oh, well, this came from Laurel Church of Christ. And you pick up that little bag of chips and you see a little label on that and huh, I wonder where that Laurel Church of Christ is. Oh, well, you know, and it plants a little seed. So now that person may not be ready for it. Or they may later think, hmm, 
I might want to go visit this place that cares enough about me to give me a juice box. I may go visit this place that cares enough about me. I go to people who care about me when I am hurting, when I am doubting, when I am in fear, when, when I am struggling. I go to people I trust. If we can build that trust now, if we can work on establishing that trust when they need it, they will come. When people hear about the church and what the church is doing in the community, they'll file it away and go, okay, well, I'll, I'll use it when I need it. How many times are people going to need an ear that can listen to them, a shoulder to cry on? How many people are going to need that throughout the community? A bunch, right? We as a church can help move that forward in all of the mission work that the deacons are currently working through. And so I know we have the mission day and we have a lot of things that the church works through and it's easy for us to sit back and go, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to help, but I have this going on. I would help except, and those exceptions and those things that we put in place are the complacency factors. There's, there's a word that's bigger and more sinister than fear. And that's complacency. If fear doesn't get us, complacency will. Satan wants to drive us away with fear. But if fear isn't going to work, complacency is his next animal that he lets out of the cage. Remember those soft churches I told you that, that, that he, you can poke with a spoon and they just kind of crumble? Those are churches that have become complacent. Those are churches that have left that, left that spirit, that zeal, that passion kind of die off. And I want us to avoid that at all costs because that is the most sinister of all of Satan's weapons. Because complacency doesn't require Satan to actually do anything. Complacency happens because we start listening to that, that inner voice that says, I can do it better, or I know more or I have a better idea. Have you ever heard the saying, perfect is the enemy of good enough? Have you ever experienced it? Perfect as the enemy of good enough? So as an engineer, I can tell you that one of the things that I struggle with is I like perfect. I like things to be absolutely perfect. I strive for the the absolute most elegant of solutions. But oftentimes, good enough is what's needed. And there's two opposing spectrums here. There's, there's perfect, which is the pinnacle, which can everybody be perfect? Can we be perfect by ourselves? No. Where is perfection found? In Christ. And we are perfect through Christ. That is good enough, and that's good enough for me, because I can't be perfect, but I can be perfect through Christ. I mentioned there's a spectrum. There's the perfect, there's good enough, and then there's this thing called not quite right. Not quite right is the thing that everybody looks at and goes, okay, that's acceptable. And acceptable slips way, way down the threshold very quickly. You ever walked into your teenager's room if you're a parent? And you walked in and you're like, oh, this is not quite right. Okay. 
Only occasionally. My daughters are very, very neat. And but, but as a teenage boy, I know that my room was often not quite right. We as a church have to look and strive for perfection. But we have to accept that we are good enough to do what Christ has called us to do. And we have to absolutely avoid at all costs that not quite right situation where we just become complacent, where we're willing to let others suffer because I just, I just have this thing that I have to take care of. I'll help you later, but right now I have this thing first. So we can become trustworthy as individuals, and we can come, become trustworthy as a congregation. Let me ask you this. What in your mind, if you had a picture of a trustworthy congregation, what are some of the thoughts that come to mind? What does that ideal look like? What does a trustworthy congregation mean to you? Busy, okay. Not busy bodying, but busy, okay. I like the distinction. Sound doctrine. Okay, trustworthy is sound in the doctrine. Al in the back. Praying. We're a congregation that prays. Disciplined. Okay, I like that. Disciplined. Hardworking. Busy. Not busy body. Loving. There we go. Okay. Inclusive. I don't shun anyone. I am willing to talk to anyone and everyone. I'm sorry? All these words remind me of a particular individual in the gospel. Who is it? Christ. A trustworthy church is someone who reflects Christ. Christ was the most trustworthy individual on the planet. And as long as we as individuals move to live and become as trustworthy and portray those same trustworthy traits that Christ had, the church will move in that same direction. I mentioned John Bobo in the first because he did something that everybody else could see that was in his battalion. He, he took lead, he took position, he, he accepted the shots, and he was willing to die to, to ensure that his people could live, that his, his platoon would be able to make it out of there. Christ has done that for us. Christ lived for us and died for us. There's almost, there's no other way that you can build trust in someone than to lay down your life for them. We as a congregation have to accept that same attitude of willing to lay our lives down to help the community around us. We have to be seen as such a loving, caring, heartfelt open, inclusive community in this congregation that everyone around us goes, that's the place I want to go to when I'm hurting. That's the place I want to reach out to if I need help. Can we do it? Yes. When Unless we're following God's word, unless we are living the life that Christ set out for us to do, unless we're in the gospel, unless we're studying scripture, unless we're really working with a purpose instead of just working, 
Diane put a good point. There's a difference between being busy and being a busy body. As long as we have that purpose, that passion to do what God asks of us, living in his word daily, praying constantly for those around us, asking God to give us the challenge so that we can rise up and meet it. Because the game has already been won. We cannot lose this game. All we have to do is engage. We simply have to play. And playing is fun. Playing is the challenge. It won't be easy. The church in Smyrna found that out. But the rewards are, well, eternal. For us and for those around us. And as long as we play the game like their lives are at stake and not ours, we have a lot more freedom to maneuver. We have a lot more freedom to get out and do stuff. Amen? Can the congregation do it? Yes. yes. We just have to stake to the plan. We have to follow through. We have to focus on those traits that we can find in the Bible and follow Christ. All right, my time is up. I thank you very much for coming out this morning. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the second half of leadership, which is being able to pull all of this together and help the congregation stay focused. Not an easy task, but we'll stay tuned. We'll get into that next week. Hey, thanks, Brother Alan.